chapter 3. Has everyone heard of John chapter 3? Even you Monday Night Football fans have probably seen John chapter 3, 16, right behind the goalpost. Well, we want to look at the first seven verses this morning. The first seven verses of John chapter 3. We will, we will come to the 16th verse a little bit later. But before you can get to the 16th verse, you've got to understand why Jesus ever mentions the 16th verse. And I had mentioned earlier this year that I was going to do a how, what, why series, if you will, of just things in the Bible that are doctrines that either you've heard all your life and you maybe didn't understand the, the full weight of it, or maybe uh, you think, you know, I've heard different viewpoints on this, and just different topic areas. And so one, I'll do one later this year on the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, because there's different works of the Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit, but there's different works of the Spirit. And we want to understand that, uh, how it relates to salvation versus the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And a little bit of that will be touched on today, because you can't mention salvation without mentioning the Holy Spirit. But really I'm focused on what is, what is salvation? What is it that really radically changes someone from being lost to saved? And so John chapter 3 uh, any of you that have been at this church any time, I recommend to all of you uh, that if you don't know how to witness to a person, just have your Bible handy and you can always take them through John chapter 3. You don't need a gospel track. You don't really even need a lot of experience. Just read it a few times and just let Jesus do the speaking and, uh, and you'll do pretty well just going that route. However, I hope that uh, we see some things uh, that help you in your own understanding but also as you uh, present Christ and pray for people that are unsaved as you pray as well. I believe this chapter, uh, you can't do any better. I love what the apostles write about salvation. That's anointed. I love what's in the Old Testament about salvation. That's anointed. But if you want to know about salvation, who better to hear from than Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at. John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put one in your hand. John 3 should be marked for you. All right, we're good to go. Starting verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't think that's what Nicodemus asked. Do you? Let's go on. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb be born? Jesus answered said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Let's pray again. Lord, we Ask this same spirit that Jesus speaks of to speak to each spirit, each heart, each soul, each mind in this place. You know what each person needs. To the save, Lord, that we would fall more in love with you or fall back in love with you. To the unsaved, if there are any, Lord, that they would know that this is their hour, that you're speaking to them to come to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
here in the middle of the night, a deeply devout Jewish man, deeply devout, Pharisee, just like the Apostle Paul, you know, the religious sect, the highest order of keeping the law. He knew the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at this time. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You had Genesis through Malachi. But he was deeply devout. And Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus doesn't seem to ask. See, Jesus sees his heart. He sees the heart of every person, doesn't he? He sees deep in there. And he knows that deep down inside of everyone is this question. What really happens when I die? It's there. Nicodemus didn't say, hey, how do I get to heaven? He said, teacher, we know that you're from God. And Jesus said, you got to be born again. That's not what he asked. But deep inside, people are asking, will I go to heaven or will I go somewhere else? Have I done enough good things? Am I good enough? Jesus says to Nicodemus and to everyone else, you must, must be born again. There's not another option. There's only one door here. And that sounds to me, when someone says to you, you must be born again, and that someone happens to be God, it sounds to me like we're going to need some outside help. Doesn't it? I mean, did anyone here decide to be born the first time? No, there was some outside help there, wasn't there? So if there was some outside help with the first birth, there's going to have to be some outside help with the second birth, correct? And we live in the United States, which we have churches all over the place. Right on this street, there's churches. There's churches all over. Uh, at least four or five hundred in Richmond, evangelical, at least in name, churches. Uh, same when I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, many churches, four or five hundred evangelical churches there. Recent poll in the United States shows that about 70% of Americans call themselves a Christian. We have someone running for president right now that calls himself a Christian, but it says he doesn't need to ask for forgiveness. Right? So we have many people that call themselves Christians according to God's written word, which is the Bible, which we're reading from. A Christian is one that has experienced genuine salvation. Let me say that again. A Christian is someone, according to the Bible, not the definition culturally now of a Christian, but a Christian, according to the Bible, is someone who has experienced genuine salvation. In other words, they have been saved. Another term that we use in the body of Christ, saved. Saved from what? Jesus said, most surely, you need to be born again. Saved from what, though? Well, saved from judgment to come, because it's written, every man shall die, and after this, what? The judgment. Everyone's going to stand before God. Saved from the judgment to come, and saved from the penalty of hell, because there is a heaven and there is a hell. There's not a purgatory. There's not an in-between not a dead space. It's not a just ceasing to exist. According to the Bible, this salvation is being saved from something into Christ. But if biblically every, if biblically a Christian is synonymous with salvation, and it is, it begs the question, what is salvation? 
What is salvation? Because there seems to be a lot of weight in that word, right? What is it? And that's our title today, if you're taking notes. What is salvation? And more importantly, we'll look at what does Jesus say it is? What does Jesus and the scriptures say salvation is? And even in the church, there's some real misunderstandings of it. I want to read you something. This is not a misunderstanding. This is a good definition of kind of where we're at today in America, but actually what salvation is. This is from um, Bill Hall's book, Conversion and Discipleship. You cannot have one without the other. You can get uh, Lifeway in different bookstores right now. But uh, listen to what he writes right here. Uh, This is uh, page 79. The Greek word translated saved and its synonyms primarily mean delivered from something or someone. And we are. We're delivered from hell and the power of darkness and actually Satan himself, who's called the God of this age. But salvation is not just, listen closely, salvation is not just a past experience. The Bible speaks of salvation as a present and future reality, while the modern Western church primarily views salvation as a past event that begins a Christian life. The New Testament speaks of salvation as both an event and a process, a journey. This journey begins with repentance and belief that are followed by a lifetime of discipleship. The ongoing discipleship journey leads to greater sanctification, and in the end, we experience complete transformation in the eternal state. Salvation, then, is much closer to the process of discipleship than our typical gospel presentations depict. You understand? See, a lot of times people today, when they, when they talk about salvation, even the church, they talk about Did you pray and get saved? But salvation is way more than... It is is that day. Don't don't be misunderstood. Salvation is the day you came to Christ. But it's not only the day you came to Christ. It's the life in Christ after. Salvation is not just a past event, but it is a present state. And as we look at this, I want to first look at what salvation isn't as just a level set. Uh, This might not be new news to everyone here. But I think that it will be helpful for all of us, and some of you, it will be uh, perhaps new. And you've heard some of these misconceptions, misunderstandings. You've heard them in the workplace. You've heard them at your family reunions when they've asked you about you being born again or you being saved, or you've heard them uh, in other conversations. And we want to look at each of these. Let's take a look at the next, and then I'll just build through these. The first one, one thing that salvation isn't, is a Protestant or a Catholic. If someone says to you, I've been a Protestant since I was four, doesn't mean they have been saved. Well, I grew up in the Catholic Church. Does not mean salvation. Um, That's no better than being a Detroit Lion fan or a New York Giants fan or whatever else, right? It doesn't have any saving power to be a Protestant or a Catholic. There's no saving power. Jesus did not ask Nicodemus, what denomination are you? It's the middle of the night. I would love to help you, but I just need to know what denomination are you? Well, I'm a practicing... Well, you're good. Case closed, dismissed. Acts 4, 10 through 12, it says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth... This is the stone which was rejected. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name 
under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus, not a denomination. Um, now, Catholicism in and of itself, now if you understand pro, the word Protestant, or, you know, it comes from the reformers like Martin Luther. They protested against, why do we get this name Protestant? The reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, they protested against the Roman Catholic theology of works-based salvation, which is not true. In other words, they were right. You cannot achieve salvation through works. So doctrinally, there's major problems with Roman Catholicism in the doctrine because, yes, Jesus Christ is in the doctrine, but Jesus Christ plus something else, plus works. And it's not Jesus Christ plus the rosary, plus anything. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing, because he and he alone. And this is where the Reformers protested against it. The more they studied their Bible, the more they said, time out, this seems to be additional to what Jesus said. And in fact, it is. And in the traditions of men have always crept up. This was the problem that Jesus ran into with Judaism. Judaism was pure when Moses delivered it. What was it like by the time Jesus got there? It had all kinds of traditions of men added to it. And this is what you get with denominations. This is what you get over time. Men add their own stuff. And after a while, there's no gospel left. So denomination... That's not salvation. How about being a good American citizen? I mean, if God loves anyone in the world for salvation, it's got to be Americans. Look at all the good we've done for the world. So we're, we've, we must be in. I mean, we sing a song called God Bless America. And at 4th of July, we put our hands on our hearts and all these things. So God must be, absolutely, we must be in good shape. No. Romans 2.11 says, for with God, there is no partiality. There's no partiality with God. God doesn't love Americans any more than he loves Japanese, than he loves people from Zimbabwe, than he loves people from Brazil, than he loves people from Russia. He loves all people the same, and they all need the same born-again experience. Americans are not in any way, shape, or form in the clear because they're born in a nation that has, in God we trust, on our dollar bill or on your quarter. So that has nothing. See, the Jewish people believed that just being Jewish, that they were already in the family of God. That wasn't true either. God wasn't partial to Jewish people. Judas was Jewish. You're pretty cl- we're pretty clear where he's not today. Jesus made that clear. So Jewishness, being an American, none of those things. And again, you might say, well, everyone knows that. No, everyone doesn't know this. There's people around you that think that, hey... These things must be reasons why I'm good enough. How about a very religious person? This is something salvation isn't. Nicodemus, again, qualifies here, right? Jesus says, later on, he says to him, uh, in verse 10, he says, Are you the teacher of Israel and did not know these things? He not only was religious, he was teaching other people religion. So he actually had a place of religious authority. He had great depth of understanding of the Bible, which was the Torah, the law. He understood the law. 
But being religious, that's not enough. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one. Isaiah 64.6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. I remind myself, I sometimes remind you guys, the best day I've ever lived to God is still filthy rags. Now, he loves me by grace. We'll get to that. But I've never done enough good. You know, yesterday when I said, finally said, yes, sir, I'll go invite these guys. God wasn't saying, now, now you have enough righteousness because tomorrow I'm right back in square one having to do what he asked me to do next. None righteous, not anyone at all. James says in James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, is guilty of it all. So if you ever hear a person say, Well, I've been pretty good most of my life, but I messed up one time. Well, first of all, they're lying. They've messed up many more times than one. But even if that was the only God says, All right, fine. You're still guilty of the whole law. All of it. Now, you would say, I don't understand that. Well, God doesn't have to explain himself to us. We have some explaining to do to him, but it's not the other way around. Understand also that all the religions of the world are based on works. All the religions. You ever, you ever seen some of the religions of the world and you see how much they have pomp and circumstance or even things that is like even self-mutilation if it depends on what the, what the religion is or thing. And they're all based on works, trying to please their version of God. You can never do enough to please God. We'll get to Jesus. He's the only one that could do enough to please God. But all the religions of the world are based on works. Much of Protestant denominations today are more based on works than they are based on grace and salvation. Catholicism is very much based on works, as I already mentioned. And they're all based on humans that were sinners. If you look at these non, if they're religions that don't come from what we call the Christian realm, uh, Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, they were all sinners. And last I checked, none of them died on a cross, none of them died for other people, and none of them rose from the dead. So none of them have any power. They're all in the grave still. And, of course, Jesus did this for all of humanity. So being very religious, that's not salvation. How about someone who believes in God? And even to the point where someone says, I believe God is who he says he is. You might have... You might have people that, that you know that say, hey, I don't need to go to church. I just worship God out here in nature, hunting on Sunday, fishing on Sunday, golfing, reading every page of the paper, having gigantic breakfast or whatever it is. I'm, just, I'm not picking on the Sundays. I'm just saying what you'll find is that if you talk to them, they might say, I believe in God. And you can even tell them what you, your definition of God from the Bible is. I believe all that. I just don't need to do what you do to worship God. Now, again, they've written their own Bible in their mind. Because they might believe God is who he says he is, but they in no way actually follow God. And James, in James 2.19, he says, You believe there's one God? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. So... James says, the demonic world's not saved. 
and they believe in God. So if you believe in God, that doesn't mean you're saved either. He says, we know the demons, where they're destined to go, and they believe in God. Matter of fact, unlike most people that don't follow God but say they believe in God, the demons actually tremble about it. Most of the people you know don't tremble about God. They have no fear of God because the demon world has actually seen the power of God is whereas a lot of people haven't. So believing in God is not (laughs) salvation. How about someone who believes in Jesus say, hey, this is one notch better. I not only believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Well, you might even believe Jesus is who he says he is. So you might run into people. I've run into many people. I've been saved since 1995. I've had so many conversations. I've had them with Mormons. I've had them with Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had them with Muslims. I've had them with Sikhs. I've had them with atheists. I've had them with Jewish people. I've had them with many just non-religious, I just want to have a good time in America. Had lots of different conversations. And I'll meet people along the way, and so have you, that definitely will believe everything I say about Jesus. But yet, they don't have Jesus in their hearts. They can believe that Jesus is who he says. Hey, do you believe Jesus came from God? Yes, I do. Do you believe he's lived a sinful life? Yep. Do you believe he walked the earth and uh, did all these miracles? Yep. Do you believe he died on the cross? Yes, I do. Do you believe he raised from the dead? Yes. Do you follow him? Luke 18, 18, there was a rich young ruler. He believed everything about Jesus. He even called him teacher. He said, I know you're the real deal. So Jesus said, all right. He even asked Jesus, he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He knows he's talking to the one that gives eternal life. You can know who Jesus is and know he's the one that can give eternal life and yet not have received it from him. Because the rich young ruler said, how do I have eternal life? You're the one. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what to do. Go sell everything you have, follow me. Did he do it? No. But he believed everything about Jesus. He wouldn't put his trust in Jesus. So believing in Jesus, that's not salvation. How about someone who goes to church and even gives to the church? They even give financially. They may even give of their time, too. Well, that is addressed by Jesus, too. I don't know if you know I'm giving a verse for every one of these. Have you noticed? I could give many other verses, but we don't have enough time. So I have to give one verse for each, just so you know, this is not my opinion. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said these words, These people draw near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. You can even come and sing worship songs. That's not salvation. Going to church, giving to the church, that's not salvation. We're going to get to what it is, but again, this is what it isn't. How about this one? Someone who reads the Bible. Thomas Jefferson read the Bible. He loved to read the Bible. Matter of fact, some of our founding fathers were deists. They all loved the Bible. It was right there with the dictionary, and they had a couple other books there with it. Does that mean that they were saved? No. Reading the Bible is not salvation. Atheist. Matter of fact, a lot of atheists will tell you the reason why they're atheists is because they read the Bible cover to cover. I doubt many of what they say. I agree with Ray Comfort. I don't believe that they read every cubit word there in Ezekiel and everything else. But nevertheless, some of them have. Some of them have read the whole thing. Some of them are cheating a little bit. They skimmed it, and they call that read the whole thing. But regardless, you can read the whole Bible. You can read the Bible daily. It doesn't mean salvation. Jesus said this as well. Listen to these words. There's a verse for every one of these. 
John 5, 39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures for them, you think you have eternal life. But these are which testify of me. Ah. Jesus said, you can search the whole scriptures and think you have eternal life. He said, but they testify of me. In other words, you can have the actual written word, but not have him. You can read to appease God, and people do. You can read because you're just still wondering, and people do that. You can read because you're still investigating, and people do that. But reading the Bible is not salvation. How about this one? This is a classic one in America. Someone raised in a Christian home. It's been well said, God doesn't have any grandchildren, right? He doesn't. Being raised in a Christian home is not salvation. In Ezekiel 18.20, it says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wickedness shall be upon himself. What is the prophet saying in Ezekiel there? He's saying each person, their walk with God stands alone. There's no nepotism. There's no auto-inheritance. Well, my pappy was a Baptist preacher, and his pappy was a Baptist preacher, and and all the way back, so we're, I mean, if any family's good to go, we are the one. No. Each person has to make their own decision for Christ. I know nobody talks like that anymore, but uh, years ago people did that. Maybe parts of North Carolina or something. Sorry if you're from North Carolina. They still talk that way, but I lived in North Carolina. There is still some of that. Uh, some of my family's from there, so we can make fun of ourselves. So, being raised in a Christian home, not salvation. Next one. Ooh, this is a big one, though. This might be the, the biggest one of all. Someone who said a sinner's prayer and walked an aisle. This is the Holy Grail. If someone's done that, they most assuredly are saved, Right? Find me one verse in all the Bible that says it. You will not find one that says that this... You'll find verses that will actually caution to just say experience. Now, I got saved in an altar call. So I'm not... I'd like to have one here this morning too, by the way. I got saved in an altar call. So altar calls absolutely bring people to salvation. I got saved saying a sinner's prayer. So sinner's prayers are important. They can be whatever sinner prayer God puts on a person's heart, right? There's different people pray. The thief on the cross had the most interesting sinner's prayer I've ever heard. Father, remember me today, or Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Quite a, but Jesus looked deep in the heart because he'd already repented prior to that. But walking an aisle and saying a sinner's prayer... God looks at all the motives. In Matthew seven nineteen and 20, Jesus said this. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into what? The fire. Therefore, by your fruits you will know them. By your fruits you'll know them. Fruit, not a date per se, is the fruit of a changed life. Salvation, we're getting to the definition here as we're looking at what it isn't, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit, not by the date stamped in their Bible. Because somebody could write a date, but if they don't have any fruit, Jesus said it's their fruit 
is the evidence. They'll bear good fruit. In the 21st verse, Jesus adds this statement of eternal importance. Listen to this statement that Jesus makes. I know, I know people don't read it often. It's not popular preaching, but Jesus said it, so we must understand it and embrace it. Jesus said in the 21st verse, so I just read 19 and 20, Matthew 7, 19 and 20. This is the 21st verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. There it is. Jesus debunks the actual sinner's prayer. In, a, in, a, in the sense that the sinner's prayer is a panacea, and it automatically assures salvation. He said, no, no. Plenty of people will say, Lord, Lord, and had already called upon Lord, but he, will say, he said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter in. Billy Graham, you guys, he's been around longer than all of us. He's, what, like 97 now? Billy Graham's done crusades all over the world. Billy Graham was asked many times about the uh, conversions that took place. But he was asked, they said, Billy, do you think all the people that came forward at all these massive crusades, do you think all of them were genuinely saved? You know what he said? Time will tell. Time will tell. He wasn't convinced that because they prayed and came forward that they were truly saved. He said, time will tell. Time will tell, did their life change? Did they do a 180? And if they did, yes. Their altar call, their prayer was genuine salvation. Because you can have the real thing or you can have the fake thing. I'm not saying that number nine isn't a real thing. I'm saying it's not the definition of salvation. Leonard Ravenhill what a pastor and preacher he was. He said, the sinner's prayer has sent more people to hell than all the taverns in America. Wow, how about that one? I love that guy. He's in heaven now, but he said that he said the church uh, got on him about taking the Bible too serious. He said, do you really think when I stand before Jesus, Jesus is going to say, Leonard, you took me too serious? Yeah, not, not, that's not going to happen. It's true. The sinner's prayer has, has given a lot of people a false sense of security. But I don't even think it, deep down, I don't even think people have the sense of security that they try, because I've heard people tell me, yeah, I've prayed that prayer like 50 times. At the youth retreat, then at the college retreat, then the young adults retreat, and then at the couples retreat, I prayed it again, and then over here, I prayed it again. And God wants to say, but when you really meet it, you're going to see a change. You won't have to keep praying the sinner's prayer. Start praying a lot of other prayers, but it won't be that prayer. Last one here, what it isn't. Someone who's been baptized. Another thing that's well known. We know baptism is not the means of salvation. If it were, then the thief on the cross couldn't have gone to heaven. He had no opportunity to be baptized, did he? But Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not, well, you know, <laughs> we don't have a baptism option for you. No. Even though he wasn't able to be baptized. Now, I have no doubt if he, Jesus allowed him to live, he would have gone on to be baptized. Because personal faith and trust in Christ is the source of salvation. It's not immersion. It's not sprinkling. It's not christening. But that said person who's truly saved will want to be baptized. If you are truly saved here, you 
need to be baptized and you should want to be baptized if you've not been baptized because Jesus commands it. So these are the things that salvation isn't. I'm, I know that there are others, but this is a really good list that culturally, Christian community, churchism, all that stuff, you will see all of these either adopted, somewhat kind of accepted, or even perpetuated, and uh, sometimes unspoken perpetuated, if you will. But the reality is that they're all out there, and you're going to hear them from people, and you need to be able to give an answer to every man who asks a reason for the hope which lies within you. So you have scriptural answers, and you do them humbly and gently with people and say, no, no, I, I understand you may have been taught that. But can I show you what the Bible says? Can I show you what it actually says? Take a look at our need in response. So we know what salvation is, isn't. What about our need? We have a need here. Our need in response. Well, Jesus said, you must be what? Born again. How do you get born again? He says that's what we need. We can't, it's just like we couldn't decide to be born, how do we experience something that's supernatural? Well, it has to come from a supernatural source. It has to come from God himself. First thing is our penalty is satisfied through Christ alone. So we've been, uh, we just are finishing up the book of Luke. We have one, one study left at the end of June. And Jesus himself has conquered sin. He's conquered death. I don't know if my red is showing up well there, but I hope, uh, hope you can make something out of it there. But the cross, Jesus had to do that. Nicodemus couldn't say, all right, what do I need to do? Nicodemus, you need to go die on a cross, shed your blood for your sins, and rise from the dead. He couldn't do it. Nicodemus, you need to go ahead and sacrifice 8 trillion sheep on the altar. He didn't say any of those things. There was nothing Nicodemus could do. The flesh profits nothing. We understand that? There's nothing Nicodemus could do. He couldn't author his own salvation. Jesus is the author of salvation. He's the finisher of salvation. So the cross and the resurrection, we have a penalty that needs to be satisfied. Look at the 16th verse, John chapter 3. told you we'd get to that verse too. For God so loved. Aren't you glad he loved the world? Aren't you glad he loves you? He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What did he give when he gave his only begotten son? Well, his son was the one that could absorb the penalty of our sin, absorb the penalty of hell, absorb the penalty of all of our sin. He had to give the sacrifice and the solution all in the same person. Jesus was everything needed. All the former sacrifice in the temple and the tabernacle, all the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews tells us, couldn't satisfy. God sent, he had to send a perfect sacrifice. But not only that, whoever believes in him, have to believe in him. Not just believe about him, believe in him. Would have eternal life. In Galatians 2.16, says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, even we who have believed in Christ Jesus. Works can't do it. Has to be believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection. 
So the penalty has to be satisfied through Christ alone. Not according, 2 Timothy 1.9, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace which he has given to us. What is grace? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. God says, I will give you an escape card from hell. I will give you an entry card to heaven. I will give you the forgiveness, and I offer it through my son. But that is the penalty satisfied through Christ. Just because it's offered doesn't mean that people receive it. Understand that? God's reaching out his hand all day long. Lots of people are saying, I'm not interested. But the penalty's already been paid. Right? Penalty's been paid. But salvation is not just knowing that the penalty's paid. We have a response. The penalty has to be applied. The sacrifice. Jesus... If he paid the penalty, we're applying him to our hearts, right? We can't apply ourselves to it. Jesus took his sin. That's why it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus became sin for us that we are applying his righteousness. We have to believe in, we have to repent, and we have to surrender. Alan Redpath said this, he said, Many seem to think that, first of all, the Bible has to be explained. But that is not true. It has to be believed and obeyed. We fail to see the tremendous difference between knowing the Word of God and knowing the God of the Word. It has to be believed. You can't respond to the gospel unless you first believe it. And then when you believe it, you have to repent and you have to surrender. The gospel's power, by the way, is not an explanation It's in proclamation. Understand that when you're trying to share Christ with someone. Don't think, man, I don't have all the answers. The power of the gospel is not in you having all the answers. The power of the gospel is in the gospel. Proclamation, not explanation. I'm giving some explanation today, but the power is not so much in my explanation, but in its proclamation. Notice how often Jesus proclaims salvation. He proclaims it. Rather than explain it, he comes on the scene and says, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Give us the cliff notes on what that means, right? The power is in saying, Repent. He knows the human soul already, he knows it's lost, and he knows that the conscience has been put there by God, and that Jesus, Jesus knows that our conscience knows. Even when you see an atheist railing, Jesus knows that their conscience deep down knows he's the only one telling the truth. Do you know that? Romans 1 tells us that. That people force themselves to believe a lie. Deep down, they know Jesus is the only one telling the truth. That's why I know they use his name as a swear word, but they never use Muhammad's name. They never say Buddha. They never say Confucius when they feel like cursing. They say Jesus, and they don't even know why. Because it's the only name with power. And it, and it works better at that time than other curse words in their mind. Now, they'll give an account for that. We use his name in worship. And we use it in a different kind of power. But they don't use anyone else's name because they know deep down whose name has power. So you can say, hey, I notice you like to use that name. Why? If Muhammad Ali is the greatest, start using his name. Right? 
I'm not making light of, I'm just saying that I do think he probably was the greatest boxer, but, but people, the name of Jesus has so much more power. That's why they use it as a curse word. But even if one believes the message, they believe that the penalty has to be applied, the penalty that Jesus paid, I, I, it should say penalty paid, but even if they believe that, they have to repent and surrender. Alan Redpath said this, he said, second quote from Alan, he said, I want to make sure the issue is crystal clear. There can be no possible doubt, according to the word of God, either Jesus must be king or he cannot be your savior. He must be king or he cannot be your savior. We have to have a response. What is the response? Well, the response is to receive the grace. Nicodemus just say, here's Nicodemus's plight. I can't Re- rebirth myself. Who can? And Jesus says, now we're talking. Right? Now, now you're getting it. I have to do that work for you. Ephesians 2, 5, and 8. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's Ephesians 2, 5, and 8. It's the gift. You have to receive that gift. We believe on the name of Jesus. We repent of our sins. We, turn, we say, Lord, I want to give these sins up. And we come under the authority of Christ and his gift of eternal life. So that's our response. It's grace received. Total forgiveness. Forgiven and born again. What does this mean? Jesus says, again, you must be born again. What, is, what does it mean to be born again? Well, it means total forgiveness from our sins, a transformed life. It means the reception of eternal life. I already possess eternal life right now, though I'm not living in eternity yet. If you're saved, you already possess eternal life right now. The Bible says we're seated in the heavenlies. What does that mean? Well, sometimes God talks outside of time, and sometimes he speaks to us within the constraints of time. Outside of time, we're already there. Inside of time, we have the guarantee of being there. Does that make sense? Outside of time, we're there. Right now, we have the guarantee we will be. Salvation through Christ, though, is the only means of being totally forgiven. It's the only way there's no more guilt. It's the only way there's no more shame. And it's the only escape of the eternal penalty of hell. Not only are we reborn in spirit and taken from death to life in uh, the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ, but there's more. In Colossians 1, 2, 13, it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with you, having forgiven all your trespasses. The sins are gone, but we've been made alive now. We didn't even know we were dead. Nicodemus didn't know he was dead. We've been made alive. We've been cleansed. We've been adopted into the family of God. See, adoption means God chose. He didn't ha- you weren't in the family, but he pulled you into the family. Romans 8.15 says, But you received the spirit of adoption whom, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The reason why Jesus says to pray, Our Father, is because you've been adopted into a family. 
which is great when I'm talking to young people that have lost their father or their father's been in prison. Say, you can have a father. God will adopt you. He wants to adopt you. He sent his son to adopt you. Not only are we adopting the family of God through his son, but we have an eternal future home with God. Isn't that great to know? Your house falling apart? Your heavenly house will never fall apart. It's in heaven where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Jesus said in John 14, 3, I go and prepare a place for you. If I come again and receive you myself, that there I am, you may be also. Jesus is building a house for every one of his sons and daughters. Not only forgiven, not only cleansed, not only are we spared, not only are we adopted, not only do we now have a new family, an eternal destination, but we have new desires right now. New desires. You could have never convinced me before salvation to be here on Sunday morning when I could have been playing sand volleyball. Mm-mm. What a boring trade-off in my mind. I mean, I really struggled with that. The fact that getting saved meant I was going to have to give up my fun stuff. Not all of it's sin either. A lot of it's just you know, the same stuff everyone else. I mean, we're not talking about all grotesque sin. When you get saved, you give up the lordship of your, lordship of your life to Jesus. And so the concept for me that I would actually uh, enjoy being in a church service as opposed to being outside enjoying myself... I just didn't, I didn't get that. God had to grip me of my sin issue and my need for salvation. Once I did, he changed my desires. He changed my... I love to gather with guys and pray now. I love to gather with saints and talk about the Lord. I enjoy, even in my fear, going across the street and talking to people, inviting them to church or to know the Lord. Because God puts new desires in. Not only do we have eternity in the future, but we have life-changing power right now. And this is true, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and this is lacking in many, many people who sit in pews and churches. And it's lacking because some of them are, frankly, not yet born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become, or becoming, it's a continuing state, becoming new. How is this accomplished? How is this accomplished for the rest of our life? This process of discipleship and sanctification and this becoming new. Well, the same grace, understand the same grace that saved us now helps preserve us and helps grow us by the Holy Spirit that convicted us. Same Holy Spirit. He's the one that convinced me that I needed to be saved. He's the one now that convinces me to stay in the boat with the Lord, and the one that actually pushes us forward in our faith. Same Holy Spirit. He brought Christ to us. Christ put the Holy Spirit in our lives, and now that same Holy Spirit leads us in a deeper relationship with Jesus. Paul said, if anyone hath not the Spirit of Christ, he's not of Christ. So I can't, I don't really feel like doing anything. That's not a good thing. Now, we all go through seasons and phases of dry spells. I'm not ta- but I'm saying if you, you can look back, from the time I got saved till now, I just, nothing. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is powerful. New creation, right? Do you think a new car looks the same as a beat-up jalopy? 
No, they're vastly different. His work, I want to close with this. It's his work. It's not of works, but the Holy Spirit comes in, and so it's not a conjuring up of works. It is a blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. It's a taste of glory divine. It's walking out these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're saved, we're sealed by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's there to help us. He's there to warn us. He's there to convict us. He's there to mature us. He's there to spur us, just like a jockey does with a horse sometimes. Get moving. And he's the guarantee of our salvation. Don't you like guarantees? We don't put our salvation in a maybe, I hope God really saved me. 2 Corinthians one twenty two says, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Our hearts. The Holy Spirit is only given to those who are born again. This is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. What's flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. Holy Spirit's only given to those who are born again. So that's why many people can claim to be Christian or Protestant or Catholic or this, that, and the other, but they can't claim the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because that's only given to the born-again, blood-blot salvation that Jesus gives. But this Spirit, it's the root. Understand, just like you have plants and are trees, the root, it's the root of our new life. It keeps bringing the nourishment and living water into us to help us to grow. Otherwise, we would die if we didn't have the Holy Spirit flowing in our life. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, he warned, did he not, that those that fall away have no root in themselves. He said, there's many that will fall away. He also said, broad is the road to destruction. Many there be that go that way, but narrow is the way to eternal life, and few there be that find it. But the root, he said, many go, they fall away. They have no genuine conversion. So the tough times, some persecution, the lure of the world causes them to return to sin, or, in their minds, they haven't returned to sin, but they have returned as being Lord of their lives. Jesus isn't Lord of their lives. Jesus isn't the Lord of most of the church's life. But the born-again person, Jesus is the Lord of their life. And so Jesus said after a while, they just kind of box up their faith into something that they themselves can manage instead of being led of the Spirit. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, he who endures to the end will be saved. Wow, there's a verse that people like to cross out in their mind. He who endures to the end will be saved. That sounds like workspace. No, it's not. No, that's why you've got to understand the book of James, the book of uh, Galatians side by side. It's not workspace. It's the work of the Spirit in the life. Not who, who says, Jesus didn't say, now he who says a sinner's prayer will be saved. He said he who endures... To the end, the one that says a sinner's prayer and confesses with the mouth and believes in the heart and receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will endure to the end. They will endure. Like Pastor Lewis Neal said, you won't look like much when you get there, but you'll get there. <laughs> now, after salvation, it's not easy to follow Jesus, is it? Does anyone here, raise your hand if you think it's super easy to follow Jesus. Anyone? Well, I think it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Maybe, I guess it's the hardest thing. Following Jesus is not easy. That's why you need a supernatural God dwelling inside of you called the Holy Spirit. It's not easy to follow Jesus. That's why people don't do it. But we need the Holy Spirit. It's not easy to follow him. At times we, want, at times we won't want to grow. 
At times, your kids don't want to go to bed. At times, they don't want to listen to you. At, we're children. At times, we don't want to grow. At times, we feel it's too hard. At times, we feel the rejection of the world. Our flesh wants to cave in. The Holy Spirit says, no, you belong to God. You belong to God. Come back. Get back in the fold. Now, it's not easy, but he's given the Holy Spirit and the gift of grace that will help us endure. This is what real salvation is. It's the real thing. Many Marines... I'm almost done, but you've got to hear it. You know the Marine Corps. Anyone here, in the, anyone here was in the Marine Corps? We have many people. All right, so the Marines. Many Marines have probably felt like, and I'm sure those of you that went to boot camp, probably felt like, man, I don't know that I want to finish this. But they look beyond their feelings to what? Completion. They look their, beyond their feelings to being part of a camaraderie. They look beyond their feelings and even though they felt like vomiting when they were running in boot camp, and they felt like giving up, and they felt like throwing in the towel, they didn't. And you know the phrase, semper fi? It means always faithful. Semper fi means always faithful. Boy, if you think the Marines are always faithful, wait till a Christian gets the Holy Spirit. With salvation, we're giving something far greater than just a goal, although we certainly have a goal. To help us remain faithful, we're giving the spirit of the living God that will not let us fail. Growth, maturing, becoming like Christ, and endurance, these are the marks of salvation, the visible fruit that Jesus speaks of. This is also defined by Jesus as being a disciple of his. And discipleship is the mark of genuine conversion and salvation. Gordon Fee said, in the long run, only disciples are converts. In the long run, all the disciples are converts. See, the power that genuinely saves us genuinely changes us, and it genuinely keeps working in us, and it genuinely keeps us, and it genuinely protects us. I want to close by assuring us all that you actually cannot lose your salvation. That would be like saying you misplaced your house. Right? You can't lose your salvation, but you can set your house on fire. Would be awful dumb. I mean, if you did on purpose. I'm not talking about accidents. That's why you have insurance, which is like the Holy Spirit. He's your insurance. But you don't misplace your house, and you don't, you don't just come home and just start destroying it. You, you hold on to that because it's valuable with your salvation. You'll never lose it. You'll never misplace it. But you can say, I'm, I'm tired of this. Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Paul said, Demas said, I'm out of here. I don't want this anymore. Judas, I don't want this. Jesus let him go, didn't he? Jesus won't ever take away our salvation. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal. John 6, 37, he said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no means cast out. Jesus will never cast us out. Isn't that great to know? You have to want out. If you don't want out, stay in and draw nearer. You'll never lose your salvation. You cannot lose it. But, again, you have to have the real thing to start with. Amen? You have to have the real thing. You have to first repent it. You have to surrender. This is what genuine salvation is. It's not the 70% of America. I guarantee you that. It's less than that. 
I don't know what the percentage is. Only God knows. But I can guarantee you that many people have a false sense of security. But God wants to give us the real thing. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we bow before you now. We're thankful. We're grateful. That you loved us enough to not only send your son, to not only complete the work of salvation, but you've written it in your word that when, when we have questions, we can say, Lord, what did you say? You're the one that said we must be born again. You're the one that said that we will bear good fruit. You're the one that said you'd seal us to the day of redemption. You're the one that said, Lord, you'll never cast us out. You're the one that, Lord, said that we must call you Lord, that we must bow, we must confess, we must turn from our sins, put our full, full faith and trust in you. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that's not done this, Lord, I pray that even today they would give their heart and life to you. And I'm just going to ask that the worship team starts to play. If, if you're here, and maybe everyone here is saved, but if you don't know Jesus, if you've never really, or maybe you know who he is, we talked about what Christianity isn't. You know who he is, and you, you believe things about him, but you've never put your own faith and trust in him. He said, a sinner's prayer is not the means of salvation. Paul said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. He wrote to some people in the church, he said, I have my doubts about you, even though he knew about their profession of faith, which is what a public profession looks like. But he said, the means of salvation, repentance, will bring forth fruit. And if you say, hey, I, I know a lot about the Bible, I know a lot about God, or I thought I did, but I've never really repented and given in my life. I'm going to ask you if you want to do that, that you come forward and stand here, and, and then we'll go off to the prayer corner.